Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Telling them to step up and do their jobs, like it's not working. Like there's clearly something going on. I don't see any evidence in front of us today that we would be better off with an executive branch controlling the budget. But you see the evidence pre-1974. But we don't live in pre-1974. The executive is more politicized. I mean, we just talked about how this administration handled the killing of a terrorist leaders group totally differently than even just a few years ago because the executive is so politicized now. This is Sarah. This is Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We are here and we have really an extraordinary amount of things to talk about. We have news. We want to talk about the outbreak of protests around the globe. We're going to follow up on our five things you need to know about the federal budget and share what's on our mind outside of politics. But before we get started, Pantsuit Politics is about to celebrate our four-year anniversary. And we didn't plan this, but it just so happens that we will be celebrating with our final finale stop on the Nuance Nation tour in Dallas on Friday, November 8th. And you know what? You should all come so we can all celebrate together. So the link in the show notes will take you to tickets. Come join us in Dallas. We're going to begin our news today by just saying again that California, we're sorry. We're sorry about how rough things are right now. 2.8 million people without power. State of emergency has been declared. Some people have lost power three times in one week. That's unacceptable. That's no way to live. Mm-hmm. More than mm-hmm. 200,000 people have had to evacuate their homes because of the threat of wildfires. And I'm just I'm sorry. I cannot imagine trying to carry on with family, kids, work, life in the midst of all of this. And we are thinking of you. 
I heard a woman on NPR describe it not as a wildfire, but a firestorm because they have these incredible winds that are fueling these fires along with the dried out vegetation. And they just move so fast. And it's I cannot imagine how scary it is. So, California, you are in our thoughts. Well, as you have probably heard, the president announced this weekend that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who is the kind of figurehead of ISIS, was killed in a U.S. raid. This person declared himself to be the leader of a caliphate that was established when ISIS was at its strongest. And during that time, ISIS was responsible for the torture and killing of many hostages for terror attacks around the world, including in France and in the United States at San Bernardino. I was reading about al-Baghdadi's history. He's an Iraqi citizen who was an academic and was pursuing that and then got swept up in the, the movements to oppose the occupation. But what I thought was really interesting is that he was arrested and put in this this United States-run prison where there's been a lot of criticism afterwards that you had moderate sort of average citizens mixed with extremist terrorists. And that's what happened to him. Like he went to this prison and met Zarqawi, who was the leader of al-Qaeda, which fed into ISIS. And that's where he really got radicalized was in that prison stay. And I thought that was really interesting and an important sort of component of how ISIS grew and how they gained leaders is because, you know, some of it was the the Ba'athist and their experience fed into extreme terrorists and then some just more average citizens that got radicalized as all these groups were mixed together. We know more about how this occurred operationally than we typically do because the president shared so many details. But al-Baghdadi was in a compound in western Syria, about three and a half miles south of the Turkish border. Eight helicopters in a nighttime raid started bombing the compound in order to enter through the side instead of the main entrance. And when it became apparent what was happening, he detonated his suicide vest, killing himself and some of his children. I thought Axios had a really important summary about all the factors that came together to make this possible. We needed our ground presence in Iraq. We needed intelligence from our Kurdish partners. We needed our ground presence in Syria for intel and situational awareness to pull this off. And so while the president is really excited about this, he has also done quite a bit to undermine the very conditions that allow us to do these operations. Yeah, I think there are several sort of separate stories happening around the death of al-Baghdadi, which is, first, what does this mean for ISIS? I think the death of the leader is a blow, but because it is such a decentralized organization, the consensus among intelligence experts seems to be that this isn't going to be the end of ISIS by any stretch of the imagination. And related to that is the second strand, that this mission was accomplished precisely because of our presence, because we weren't acting as isolationists, because of all those factors you just listed, and sort of related to what this means for ISIS, drawing out, abandoning all those presences in Syria and Iraq, the partnership with the Kurds, means that there really could be a resurgence of ISIS, even with the death of al-Baghdadi. And then, of course, the third thing is the press conference itself and the ways in which President Trump spoke about this mission, which really became sort of its own beast. I struggle with all of these stories. I struggled with all of the celebration around the killing of Osama bin Laden. I recognize that there are difficult decisions that have to be made when you're a world leader. And I'm not a pacifist. If I had to make a call like this, I think I could probably do it. I never have liked the celebration around these things. And I am particularly saddened by the language the president used to describe this killing. I don't even want to repeat it. It was so graphic and contemptuous. And I just I, I think it erodes our spirits as people when we can't even afford a shred of dignity just through omission, you know, in how we talk about the death of someone like this. Yeah, there was no somberness, sort of the. 
the way you saw President Obama speak of the death of Osama bin Laden. I saw a word count. His press conference, Obama's press conference about the, the killing of Osama bin Laden was 1,600 words. President Trump's press conference was clocking in at about 8,000 words. He just kept going. He had sort of the – they clearly wrote – sort of a somber statement. And then he took questions and then he just kept elaborating, compared it to a movie. You know, he cannot detach from the idea that the presidency and and every aspect of the presidency is about ratings, you know, and it's just so it's really it's disturbing. It's and it coarsens us. I totally agree. I think it has impact on everybody when we are celebrating people's deaths this way, no matter what the actions of those individuals are. I think there is a way to say this is what happened. It was important. It has impact. And we're not going to dance on anybody's graves. And he certainly did not choose that path. Over the past month or so, there have been so many protests around the world, and we've been able to pick up on some of those protests here and there. But we thought today that we would go through a lot of what's happening right now, just to give you a sense of how protests are spreading across the world. Beginning in Lebanon, on October 17th, a plan to tax WhatsApp and some other internet call services started what's begun to be called the October Revolution. Demonstrators are protesting the way the government is handling a severe economic crisis and what they see as corruption in the government. The richest 1% in Lebanon claimed 25% of the total national income between 2005 and 2014. So there's a large amount of income inequality. And I think what was touched with this WhatsApp tax, which is what gets play in all the articles, was really about a deeper strain of discontent, which I think is true in many of these protests. So in Lebanon, tens of thousands of people formed a human chain across the country this weekend. The Lebanese government is in so much debt, and they've been trying to secure aid from international donors. The BBC quoted a protester as saying, we're not here over the WhatsApp. We are here over everything, over fuel, food, bread, over everything. One particular story that seems to have left people not just upset about the economic realities, but completely distrustful in the government's ability to address them, is news that the prime minister of Lebanon gave more than $16 million to a South African bikini model. So they've tried to packet reforms, including slashing politicians' salaries, but Lebanon's central bank governor says the country is days away from collapse because of the impact of these protests. There's no confidence. There's banking issues. The prime minister had wanted to resign and form a new government, but right now the country is so unstable that resignation doesn't even look like a viable option because they need a consensus on a new government in a way that satisfies the entire country. What's really interesting is that Al Jazeera noted that much of Lebanese politics is sectarian, but these protests involve a non-sectarian coalition over economic issues, and much of the media is sectarian, so the coverage in Lebanon is part of the issue. You're not getting the same story from different media sources. So moving from Lebanon to Iraq, over 50 people were killed this weekend during an overnight raid by security forces trying to move protesters out of Tahrir Square in Baghdad. And in October, about 231 people have been killed. There are ongoing protests about corruption and about the lack of job opportunities. Iraq has a 36 percent unemployment rate among 15 to 24 year olds. There are also people who think that The Iraqi government is too close to both Iran and the United States and that Iran and the United States just use Iraq for their regional influence. But their leaders are not working on the everyday needs of the Iraqi people, where three fifths of those people live on less than six dollars every day. One of the issues is that the government appointments are made on the basis of sectarian or ethnic quotas instead of merit. And when we say sectarian in the Middle East, we're talking about Sunni and Shia sects of the Islamic faith. So protesters say this has allowed leaders to abuse public funds. Iraq's counterterrorism service is deployed to the streets in Baghdad to protect state buildings in the face of these protests. In Basra, police are enforcing a strict curfew. People are protesting that. The prime minister says he will reshuffle the cabinet and deliver a package of reforms. And the prime minister met a U.N. representative on Sunday to discuss electoral reforms and amendments to the Constitution. These protests really touch all parts of the globe. So these are ones that have been central in the Middle East. Now we're going to move up to parts of Asia. 
We all know about the ongoing protest in Hong Kong that's now in its 20th week. This is a place that also has terrible inequality. You have protests in India where the prime minister banned the exports of onions in the face of shortages. The government was also strictly enforcing stock limits, which led to protests from farmers in the streets of New Delhi. The Western world has its share of protests right now as well. In Spain, hundreds of thousands of people have protested the jailing of Catalan separatist leaders who were convicted on October 14th over their role in a 2017 referendum that was outlawed by the courts. This is a complicated situation, but the really interesting thing to note for today's purposes is that the protesters in Spain explicitly modeled their protests based on Hong Kong. We're going to see more of that. In France, we've been having the Yellow Vest protests for weeks and weeks, and new Black Vest protesters have broken out in France over the way the country treats immigrants. The way that these protests are kind of giving each other momentum, I think, is a really important thread to follow here. In Europe, as well as the United States and New Zealand, you're seeing protests over climate change. And then continuing to move west in Haiti, two people died over the weekend in protests that have been going on for weeks that recently turned violent. They've been demanding the resignation of President Moyes, who faces charges of corruption and national fuel shortages. Fuel is really important to understanding what's happening in Ecuador as well. At the beginning of this month, the government announced that it was ending fuel subsidies as part of spending cuts it agreed to with the International Monetary Fund. So Ecuador has a lot of oil. It is very reliant on exports of that oil. And falling oil prices globally have hurt the country. Ecuador has huge social spending programs that without the past high oil prices it's been able to garner, it cannot afford. And so it needs investment from the International Monetary Fund and other foreign investors to keep those programs afloat. But to get that investment, those investors want to see economic reforms, which leads to austerity measures like ending these fuel subsidies. So without the subsidies from the government, the prices of fuel have started to go up to the point where many people cannot afford basic necessities. And that prompted protests. People blocked highways. They stormed the parliament. After 11 days of protest and the declaration of a state of emergency, eight people died, more than 1,300 people were injured, more than 1,000 people were arrested, and the government finally backed down. They're reinstating the fuel subsidies, and they're putting together a committee between the government and indigenous leaders in Ecuador to discuss economic reforms. The problem is there's just not much they can do to raise revenue or cut expenses when the government is as weak as it is in all of its bargaining positions. And an analysis suggests that even raising taxes on big corporations and the wealthiest citizens in Ecuador won't get them anywhere close to the amount of money they need to stabilize the Ecuadorian economy. And so you see protest in Latin America and South America, especially because the IMF predicts 0.2 percent growth overall in Latin America. So they're not experiencing growth. Even with major economies like Brazil and Mexico, they're growing at less than 1 percent. So you have unrest in Venezuela and even Chile, which is seen as sort of a stable government in the region. They increased bus and metro fares, blaming high energy costs and a weakened currency, and the Chilean citizens protested that. They took to the street. The government backed off on the fare increases, but the protests have continued. More than a million people, which is 5% of the population, protested in the capital this weekend. President Sebastian Pinera asked all of his ministers to resign so that he could reshuffle his cabinet in response to protests about the high cost of living and income inequality. Some protesters wanted an entirely new constitution. A student told a Reuters reporter, this is not a simple protest over the rise of metro fares. This is an outpouring for years of oppression that have hit mainly the poorest. Chile has some of the highest post-tax income inequality among the wealthy nations around the globe, and there are regular people in the streets over a variety of issues impacted by that. Public pensions falling apart, a deficient health care system, classism, racism, and some of the protests have turned violent. There's been looting, burning. Nineteen people have died, most caught in fires from the looting, and over 500 people have been injured. Emergency rooms are overcrowded, and 3,000 have been arrested. A state of emergency was declared. Soldiers are 
patrolling the streets and there is a curfew currently in Chile. There are suggestions that Cuba and Venezuela have encouraged and supported some of the violence. And there are also images of police brutality. Dozens of lawsuits are being filed against the military for homicide, sexual violence and torture. So there are themes in these protests, right? Putting the climate protest aside for a second, the major themes are inequality. And we typically talk about that as income inequality. I think it's more accurate to talk about it as wealth inequality, which we'll talk more about in our main segment. Austerity measures, anytime people are accustomed to receiving something from a government and the government starts to pull that back, you see protests. And then just general corruption, leaders who are engaged in self-dealing while the rest of the population is suffering. And those factors across the world right now are bringing people out to engage in direct advocacy and sometimes direct demands to overthrow their governments. And I think we're just going to see more and more of this as these stories start to inspire others across the world to do the same. It's really interesting. I read a great piece called Global Protest Share Themes of Economic Anger and Political Hopelessness that I'll put in the show notes from Adam Taylor at The Washington Post. He also pointed to the theme of using social media as an organization tool in much way you saw the what happened with the Arab summer, but on a much broader range because it's all across the globe. But you see young people in particular using social media tools, particularly in Hong Kong. And then like you talked about in Spain, people replicating that model and using these tools to organize, using these tools to watch out for police. There was the famous instance of Apple pulling an app that Hong Kong protesters were using to mark the presence of police. And I think it's it's this perfect storm of people have the ability to organize. There is a bubbling, brewing frustration with both wealth inequality and government corruption or a a lack of trust in the government's ability to address things. And then they get set off by what seems like a small issue, but it's just it's just enough to get everybody's attention and say, you're mad about this. We're mad about everything. Let's go. That WhatsApp tax in Lebanon. And you see it in protests we didn't even have time to talk about, like Puerto Rico, which started with teachers protesting reforms and then and then grew and grew till it was like the entire country was protesting. And it's like these everyday issues, whether they're social media tax or fuel subsidies, which touch people's everyday lives. And then all of a sudden you can use those things that touch everyday lives to get to this underlying anger and frustration and discontent with the way things are working. And I don't think it's just the way things are working in Lebanon or the way things are working in Chile, it's everywhere. I mean, that list, the frustration with the health care system, the frustration with the cost of living, all those, those apply here too. I think what we see is a, a global economy that has left massive portions of the population behind, and they're fed up. So we're certainly going to talk more about spending and taxation in our main segment today in the United States. But before that, we always like to take a second to compliment good work that we're seeing or people who are saying and doing important things in the world. So, Sarah, who would you like to compliment today? Well, Washington, D.C. and Maryland and really the entire nation mourned the death of Elijah Cummings. And I was particularly touched by Mark Meadows, who spoke at a service in the Capitol Rotunda. They had sort of a famous bipartisan friendship, and Meadows spoke really lovingly of Cummings and talked about this at the ceremony. He said, Scripture talks about let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. So Elijah has left his tent to go to a mansion, a better place. Perhaps this place in this country would be better served with a few more unexpected friendships. I know I have been blessed by one. I thought that was very touching. That corresponds nicely to a suggestion that our listener Jacob shared with me. The Bipartisan Policy Center has a program called the American Congressional Exchange Program. And this program matches members of Congress across the aisle who agree to visit for one weekend each other's districts. And they're looking for people from districts that are geographically 
culturally and politically very different from one another. Jacob learned about this because his representative from Washington's 6th District, Derek Kilmer, hosted Representative Steve Womack of Arkansas last year and then this month visited Womack's Arkansas District. And there's a really great story that we'll link in the show notes about those visits and how they impacted each other and where they saw commonality, where they gained new appreciation for different parts of America. The more, Sarah, you and I travel, the more convinced I am that seeing different parts of the country is really important to understanding and appreciating this country. I love the idea of members of Congress doing these weekends together and forming kind of a common set of experiences to then build greater relationships on. So thank you, Jacob, for bringing that to our attention. I mean, I think that sounds like the funnest and I would like to attend those. Yeah, we, I mean, we would be great guides for those. Yeah, I mean, are they looking for moderators? I'm just throwing that out there. We would be really good, I think, at hosting those weekends for those folks. So we're available if you would like us to get on that bipartisan (laughs) policy center. All right, next up, we're going to talk about the federal budget. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second-chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy.
On Friday, we talked about the five things you need to know about the federal budget. And today we're going to add some editorial commentary to the five things you need (laughs) to know about the budget. And Sarah, I thought that we could spend just a quick minute talking about the process. It was probably implied that we are a little frustrated with Congress for not actually going through the the business of those 12 separate appropriations bills all passed alone by October 1st every year. I just wanted to add to that a little bit of context from our one of our listeners who actually works at the Government Accountability Office. The GAO has studied this issue and found that continuing resolutions and lapses in appropriations, so when we don't do this process the right way, it costs us money. It creates inefficiency. It causes management challenges. It makes it harder to get people to work for the federal government. It can keep us from having Food and Drug Administration inspectors, for example. It can hurt the health care of people who rely on the government for their health care. And so even though I think it's implied, I just want to say it, this is Congress's most important job. And I wish that they would look at it in those terms. Well, since we did all this research... I expected to feel that, you know, Congress was bad at its job. Surprise, surprise. But actually, after we did all the research and I thought about it, well, first, I've come to the conclusion that most problems in America either start with Nixon and Reagan. And if we could just undo everything they did, life would be better. That's my first conclusion. So this one, this particular problem is Nixon. And I think that it is indisputable that the power of the purse belongs with Congress. That's in the Constitution. But the federal budget and its complexity, those those purchasing decisions, really belong with the executive branch. And I actually think it's the insertion of Congress in this process with that 1974 bill in response to Nixon's refusal to spend all the money that caused the problem. I actually think we need less Congress in this process, not more. I disagree. I think that congressional involvement in this process is critical to Congress's functioning across the board. I don't know how you authorize programs without a full understanding of what needs to be appropriated to keep those programs continuing. I think the understanding by members of Congress about how complex the budgeting is, how many people it takes to make things happen is critical in making decisions about new programs and departments to authorize. And so I think that hands-on involvement by Congress is critical to maintaining a, a government where we have some kind of balance among the three branches. Yeah, but it's not working. It's not working, and we don't have any mechanism to hold Congress accountable for it not working, which is why I think this idea of the balanced budget amendment keeps coming around. Now, I want to say just from the outset, I don't think we need an amendment to the Constitution that says every single fiscal year our budget needs to be balanced. I think that ignores the reality of living in a world where sometimes you go to war and sometimes there's an economic recession and things happen. But I think the spirit behind it of saying we need some sort of mechanism that keeps us on track here is important. The problem with the balanced budget amendment is we've basically created an economy and an economic structuring, particularly when it comes to the federal government, that runs on a deficit. So I think We can either go back to giving the executive a lot more control, which is what you see pre-1974, and also less deficits, deficits that only ran in those situations with war and with economic crises. Or we can keep going in this sort of deficit-rich approach and figure out another way to hold Congress accountable. But I don't think you get the balance. I don't think you give more power to Congress or keep the current approach that gives a lot of power to Congress and get a balanced budget. I don't I just think that the federal government is so large and so complex. Running something, the programming decisions and the the purchasing at that level of complexity through an through a body like Congress, which 
you know, I don't even think has enough representatives in it. I think we need more representatives. And at that point, then you really have a problem. I think it's just it's it's ass, it's the body is not capable of delivering that. Not now, not even with some major structural changes. I think it's just it's it's too complex of a process to ask a body like that to do every year. And then if you require them to do it with some sort of balanced budgeting amendment or legislation, you're just taking more and more power from the executive. I mean, to me, it's like, God, I can't I sound like I sound like a Republican, but I, I think you have to think about it like a CEO and a board of directors, like the board of directors. It's not like they wouldn't be involved. A board of directors is involved in the prioritization of how the organization spends money. But, you know, I think about it as a city commissioner, like I can't be making every single budget decision. That has to be the city manager. That has to be the executive side of the city. And we're talking about the city of Paducah, not the federal government. And it's still way too complex to ask a political body to be in charge of, because then every single tiny little thing like freaking we have to argue about Big Bird every damn year becomes a political issue. I think though the the balance of power is off in the opposite direction because right now I think that the executive branch has way too much power in our in the overall scheme of our government and that if we keep delegating more and more of that power to the executive which we certainly would by giving them more budgetary control that we're going to have a congress that gets increasingly political and doesn't really serve any kind of function that's really about a government progressing forward so i don't want to see a one year at a time balanced budget amendment i would like to see something that holds congress accountable over a period maybe of six years, since that's the term of most senators, where you say, you know, at over a six-year period on an average basis, the budget needs to balance out. It is insane to me that we have gotten comfortable with adding trillion-dollar deficits year over year in periods of relative peace and economic prosperity, which is where we find ourselves right now. And I don't think, as I have done this research, my my big conclusion is that I just think that fight over Big Bird, as you characterize it, Sarah, is missing the point. Because I don't think there's a lot to do on that discretionary spending component that really moves the needle on these deficits. But they don't care about that. The reason Big Bird is a fight is not because it moves the needle on the deficit. It's because you can make it a political punching bag. Until we figure out other structural changes to make Congress less polarized and less political, giving them additional power, which is what we did with the budgetary changes in 1974, it made the funding of our government political. And what did we see when we made that change, when we pushed when we pushed more of this control into Congress's lap? Because it was, you know, sort of also a part of a an increasing trend towards polarization and politicalization and partisanship in Congress. We saw the government start to shut down. I mean, if we changed the law in 1974 and then we see more and more government shutdowns, to me, that's the problem. Like, that's a that's a clear indicator that whatever we did in 1974, which was make this process more about Congress and less about the executive, was problematic because it turned the functioning of the government into a political debate. So unless we deal with the polarization of Congress, just, you know, telling them to step up and do their jobs, like, it's not working. Like, there's clearly something going on. I don't see any evidence in front of us today that we would be better off with an executive branch controlling the budget. But you see the evidence pre-1974. But we don't live in pre-1974. The executive is more politicized. I mean, we just talked about how this administration handled the killing of a terrorist leaders group totally differently than even just a few years ago because the executive is so politicized now. The court system is more politicized now. It's not just Congress. It's the entire government. And so I think that if we're talking about structural changes, I don't see any evidence that given how politicized all three branches of our government are today, shifting more power to the least accountable branch of government is going to help us. I don't see this as a shifting of power. I see it, although I don't I don't disagree that it is. Obviously, budgetary authority is power. But to me, you have to look at it as 
what branch is better suited to make these budgetary decisions? Not the budget priorities, not the entitlements, not the tax cuts, not any of that, but the actual budgetary decisions. I mean, it's, it's insane to me that the executive branch, as massive as it is, and all these departments that run our government every single day spend months and months and months looking at programs, looking at authorization, making decisions about what they're going to ask for. They start in like April, submit it to the president. The president puts together a budget and we all treat it like a suggestion. I mean, those those massive agencies that are running these programs, you know, it's not like they they there's almost a checks and balance in, built in among the different departments. Right. I mean, there's only a, a finite pot of money. And so then everybody has to decide. And it's not like Congress wouldn't set up those finite pots of money. But then bringing in the complexity of how that money is spent, it belongs with the agencies that spend it. This is where I think the board analogy works really well. Ideally, Congress should function like a a board for a business or a nonprofit where you have folks in there running the work every single day, people who are employed by those agencies. Congress should have that oversight function, that ability to look at what they present and say, well, here, this doesn't make sense to us. We have questions about this. This doesn't fit into the big picture. I think you've lost your way here because you're too close to it. I mean, that's the kind of tension that should exist here. So I think it's important that you get that as a suggestion, not a suggestion that you take lightly at all, a really important suggestion, but it's tested against other priorities and other information and ultimately people who are supposed to be representing the citizenry in this process. I mean, I think just at the end of the day, it's who you think is better suited to take on that role in our current, in the in the federal government as it currently is organized and runs and at its current size. And listen, I don't say this lightly. I still remember that Donald Trump is president. But I think that the president and the cabinet is better suited to that exercise than Congress is right now. I just do. You know, the fact that it's just not working. It's not the government is not being funded. This process that we've set up does not work. It has stopped working. Plays that out. And I'm not not sure any changes we could make in Congress would make the process as we currently have it described actually function. I just think we're going to get the Congress we deserve if we keep eroding its power. And if we had that process right now, we would have massive amounts of money going to build a border wall without a check on that. And that's just not acceptable to me. Well, I don't think the answer is no checks from Congress. Right? I don't think that the process means... Congress has no say. I mean, before 1974, Congress had a say. But if Congress gave a pot of money to the Department of Homeland Security and this president's top priority was using that money to build a wall and the executive branch ultimately decided how to allocate that pot of money that Congress appropriated, don't we get a wall without Congress being able to do much about it? Well, yeah, but do we get a wall? But the, the flip side of that is the wall is what has shut down and we don't have a government funded at all. Do we not want a wall so badly that we don't want to want a functioning federal government? Yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, I mean, I think that's the issue, right? Congress says, yep, I'm not sure what the American people would say. I think the American people might say he's the he won. He's the president. If, and he won on the wall, then he gets the wall and he can use the money to build a wall. That that's preferable to shutting down the government constantly over the wall. But I don't know. Who knows? Oh, we could go to polling, which I hate right now. So that's probably not the best solution either. Well, we spent a lot of time talking about the process side of this. Let's talk about the details for a second about spending and revenue. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, 
And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. One thing that came up on Twitter with our listener and friend Fred is that interest that we spend on the debt is basically mandatory spending. There are some commentators Mm -hmm. who will not classify it as mandatory spending as that term is used to really denote programs like Social Security and Medicare. But we do have to pay it every year. And it is a lot of money. It is more money than corporations pay in taxes at all that we spend on debt service annually. That's ridiculous. It's a lot of money. And so I think as you look at mandatory spending, my big conclusion from all of this research, and this might sound like an obvious conclusion to people who know a lot about my politics. It really wasn't obvious to me. The more I learned about the budget, the less inclined I am to create any more programs that fall under the heading of mandatory spending, because we cannot know what we're going to spend every year. We cannot make changes without seriously disrupting the expectations of the American public. Those protests we just talked about, you know, when you create an entitlement and then you have to start pulling it back, it creates such political upheaval. And so I think there are a lot of things domestically that we need to be doing better for people on. I cannot imagine why we would responsibly create another mandatory spending program. Well, I think the the argument is then programs that are supposed to lend stability to certain segments of society, programs that are supposed to address poverty and hunger and homelessness, if there's no stability, if they become a political punching bag every single budgetary cycle, then you have just another type of unrest and another type of political dissatisfaction or distrust with the government. 
And we get enough of that with the requirements around the entitlement programs, much less if we were fighting over the programs themselves. I totally understand that argument and why they were set up this way. And I think we are creating long-term instability through these programs. I mean, I used to think that we should seriously rethink the eligibility for Social Security. I have since changed my mind about that. I think Social Security is a pretty good program that has served people pretty well. I do not think it serves us in the United States to have this obsession with work to the point we would say, yeah, really as a baseline, we should all be working full-time jobs until we're 70, especially given the caregiving needs in this country for older Americans. I think I think Social Security is pretty good, and we should put our efforts toward stabilizing Social Security for the long term instead of layering additional programs on. I don't think discretionary spending does that. I think that's where we have to look at the revenue side of the equation. And in the meantime, I do not think we should obligate ourselves anywhere else until we have shored up that program. I don't disagree with that. Unfortunately, the times find us. Isn't that the saying right now? And I think there could be current crises at which we just don't have a choice, that which we have to address the demand or the need and um, not wait for the perfect scenario which in which Social Security is shored up and we figured out all the issues with Medicare and Medicaid that we just might have to to sort of respond to the to the crisis at hand. Well, I think that might take us to the revenue side. And we talked on Friday about how a form of spending that we typically think of in the revenue side is tax expenditures, places in the tax code where money should theoretically be subject to taxes and isn't for one reason or another, and how these really become almost mandatory forms of spending because we're not reauthorizing them year over year. Sarah, you and I have found most of our common ground around health care on the fact that employer-sponsored health insurance disintegrates a marketplace that makes insurance worth having and also ties people to employment that they don't like and that doesn't serve them and their families well. And I think we have more ammunition for our solution of getting rid of employer-sponsored health insurance by seeing the incredible cost to our government Mm -hmm. of making that employer contribution tax-exempt. I mean, I just feel like we should say, okay, we're going to eliminate all tax exemptions, and we'll just add them back as we see a need. (laughs) I think they're all crap. That's an overstatement, and I'm being hyperbolic, and I'm not an economist. But also, I think I'm right. Well, a fresh look in that sort of blank page way, I think, would be helpful. If we were setting priorities today, which of these would make our priority list instead of just what's hanging out there? And they just shouldn't be permanent that way. We were having to fight about everything else, but a tax break is forever? I don't think so. And so obviously the other big conversation that's happening in the country right now is is about wealth inequality. And I'm saying wealth instead of income because I'm reading this book to challenge myself <laughs> called The Triumph of Injustice, How the Rich Dodge Taxes and How to Make Them Pay. It's by Emmanuel Sayez and Gabriel Zuckman. And it is a very well-researched, interesting, you know, it's not a lively read. But it's a very it's a very good read. I don't know. I think it sounds lively. I'm here for it. I don't even need to read it. I agree with everything they say. <laughs> it's a it's a lot of numbers. Um, and what they point out is that when you look at the taxes Americans pay as a whole, which is how we experience them, right? We don't experience our federal taxes over here and our state taxes over there and our local taxes right. elsewhere. We experience them on the whole. And when you look at how Americans pay taxes on the whole, we actually have a very regressive tax system where people who make the least amount of mm-hmm. dollars pay the highest percentage of their incomes in one form or another. So even though the federal income tax is supposed to be progressive, where you're not progressive in the political sense, but progressive in the sense that as you make more money, you're paying a higher percentage of your income in taxes, what we actually have is a system that's pretty flat across incomes, and it takes a nosedive at the very highest incomes because we tax income, not wealth. And that Mm -hmm. accumulated wealth and that capital people hold in the forms of shares and corporations, et cetera, 
just isn't getting taxed. And then, of course, there are people at the wealthiest levels who can afford to spread their money around the globe in the most advantageous places. You know who broke that? Reagan. Call back to my previous point. He definitely broke the taxation system. So we could undo that and really get to a lot of what they're what they're arguing for. The other reason that our system is very regressive is because at most state and local levels, we tax goods but not services. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And wealthier people consume more services than lower income people. And so when you're taxing goods, and especially, and this was challenging for me to read, when you're imposing taxes on things like tobacco and alcohol at such high levels, you really are taking a bigger percentage of the poorest Americans' incomes as compared to the wealthiest Americans. So it's just been illuminating for me to see how those numbers play out when you consider the total tax burden on Americans across the economic spectrum over a period of years. So in summary, our federal economic policy is jacked, and that's why we can never fund our government on time or are constantly facing government shutdowns. I feel like that's a good summary. I think that's a good summary. And I don't think there are easy or obvious solutions to that. You know, we spent a good 15 minutes here disagreeing about who should really carry the most weight in the budgetary process. I mean, I don't I think reasonable people can have very different opinions about all of this. But I think it's clear that wherever you fall, our debt long term is an enormous issue. It is costing us lots of money to preserve that debt. And trimming around the edges of spending isn't going to get us into a healthier fiscal place. But we could start by undoing everything Nixon and Reagan did, in summary. Sarah, what's on your mind outside of politics? Halloween! It's Halloween! Dylan, we need some spooky music. So are the Hollands going in a family-themed costume again this year? This is something we have in common. We both really love family mm-hmm. themes. So what's happening mm-hmm. with themes at your house? Um, we will be doing The Nightmare Before Christmas. Nice. Um, Felix is Jack the, Jack Skeleton. Jack the Skeleton? I don't know. I'm Sally. Nicholas is Santa Claus. Um, Amos is the Grim Reaper, which is only adjacent, but just go with me. And Nicola, or Griffin is going to be the mayor of Halloween Town. We went like all in on Halloween themed, fall themed activities this weekend. We finished our costumes. We made pumpkin pie and pumpkin bread. We ate butternut squash chili. We watched the Adams family. We carved not one, but two pumpkins. And I'm just, I'm in it to win it on Halloween and fall, and I'm loving every single moment of it. I was sick. I didn't even care. I still had a good time. Well, my weekend was trunk or treat. We have over a thousand people who come through our church every year for trunk or treat. We have a trunk set up and then a community meal afterward. So it is a lot of work, but it's a wonderful event. And my family got to preview our Halloween a little bit. So, But you have a theme too. We yes, do. Yes. Our family costumes are... Okay, Jane and Ellen said pop stars, which originally Jane told me meant that we all needed to wear blue shirts and jeans. Why Jane believes this is what pop stars wear, I do not know. But we've kind of adapted it to recording stars in general. So Jane <laughs> Jane is going to be Billie Eilish, which she's going to spend a lot of time explaining to everyone. But that's okay. She's very excited about it, mostly because she gets to spray some of her hair blue. And it looks remarkably good on her. It's very weird. She she looks like such a teenager transformed by a little bit of blue in that gorgeous blonde hair of hers. Ellen is going to be Jojo Siwa. If you don't know Jojo Siwa, she looks like a rainbow has gotten sick and exploded. And Ellen loves it. Chad is going to be Willie Nelson and has the most amazing braids. I'm very, very excited about it. And I am going to be Adele. I have ordered these fingernails. They're so beautiful. I can't wait to put them on. So it's going to be a lot of fun, I think. I told Chad he has to follow me around throwing leaves at me like in the video for hello. Yeah. Yeah. I think that sounds right to me. It's very exciting. I love a th- I love a Halloween family costume. I can't wait to see the pictures. We will share both of our families 
Halloween costumes on Instagram on Halloween. So get excited. I think we talked about this a couple of years ago, but I wanted to mention, and I wish I still had the link for it, but there was an article about Halloween as like the most wonderful holiday because Mm -hmm. it doesn't create a bunch of stress for anybody. You don't have to spend a gazillion dollars on it. And it is this fantastic way to connect with your community. If you're just walking around, people give you something for free. You don't earn it. You know, you can just show up Mm -hmm, and you say trick or treat mm -hmm. and there it is. Jane was telling me that one of her friends was saying that Halloween is about the devil. And I was like, Jane, you know what? Halloween is about your neighborhood. Halloween's about your neighborhood. And it's just so much fun. Let's just lean right into being out with our neighbors, walking around, enjoying some sweet stuff and showing fun aspects of our personality that we don't get to otherwise. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We will be back in your ears tomorrow on The Nuance Life. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 